Welcome to the Heartland Pod. I'm Adam Summer. I am your host. This is a standalone Let's Have a Chat special edition. We'll be having a few more of these as we go forward. Longtime listeners will remember when the show started, I used to break the show up this way with a talking politics separate from Let's Have a Chat. We're still going to do that from time to time, but we're going to have separate chats with artists authors, musicians, folks more outside the political spectrum that we want to sit down with and talk with them about different perspectives, different issues, and the works that they're doing. This chat is with poet and author Stephen Raines, who's written a book called A Quilt for David. It's a a fascinating story about a dentist in the early 90s in Florida who was passing away himself from an AIDS-related illness. He was accused of giving HIV to his patients through his dental practice. Many of the accusations came after he had already died. David didn't get a chance to tell his story, but Stephen, with years of research, has done just that. Okay, we are here for Let's Have a Chat, and I have Stephen Raines, who is a, it's a big list here, he's a poet and educator, he's been appointed the first poet laureate of West Hollywood, he's an author, a co-author of many pieces, an editor of many pieces, and he is here to talk about his newest collection, A Quilt for David, that is the title, published by City Lights, came out in September 2021. Stephen created the first ever autobiographical poetry workshop for LGBT seniors, lectured and taught workshops around the country to queer youth and people living with HIV, uh, is touring the Gay Rub, uh, an exhibition of rubbings from LGBT landmark, facilitates the monthly Lambda Lit book club, and is just apparently constantly working. So, uh, Stephen, thanks for taking time out of your what has to be insane schedule to come on the Heartland Pod, and, and how are you doing? Uh, clearly not sleeping a lot. Actually, just hearing that description, I think like, wow, I, I do quite a bit. Um, and that, to be and fair, that, I pared it down. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so much for asking. Yeah. Um, so you are uh, originally from Missouri. You're, you're an old Missouri boy like me, and you're now on the West Coast. Is that right? Yeah, I grew up in in Baldwin, Missouri. Yeah. And I had grandparents that lived on the hill. So I would go to the hill often. And then in 1994, I moved. um, And, you know, I graduated in high school in St. Louis or Parkway South. And then in 94, I moved. And I've now lived in Los Angeles for about 16, 17 years. The hill. Adriana's on the hill. I don't know if it was there in, in the early 90s, but by God, it's it's there now and it's delicious. But <laughs> I, I'm actually related. That's my aunt. No kidding. <laughs> that's that's my favorite. Okay. That's my favorite place on the hill. By far my favorite place on the hill. Not, not I, even close. <laughs> Hands down. I love that. you. I mean, what's so funny about that place is I was in an Uber in Los Angeles I start talking to the Uber driver who said she was from St. Louis and she mentioned Adriana's as well. So this aunt I grew up with my entire life and the kind of cooking that I grew up with, I said, like my grandparents lived on the hill. So all that food that I grew up with is now being served to people and it's wildly popular. Folks who are listening to this in Missouri, if you've not been to Adriana's on the hill, my God, Go there right, you know, if you're listening to a podcast, maybe you're in your car, turn immediately down King's Highway and go to Adriana's because it is absolutely unbelievable. So that's okay. And there's always a line too. There's always a line. There's always a line. And get just folks, 
Get the gooey butter cake. Don't be, just do it. So uh, I, I was getting to that we now have gone, you are now our, our second coast. So we've been out to North Carolina. We had a sustainable farmer uh, out of North Carolina who came on, and now we have an author from the West Coast. So we have finally made it. The Heartland Pod has made it coast to coast, uh, thanks to you coming on. So uh, so that takes me to my first question, uh, and I'm going to start on the West Coast, and then we'll get to a quilt for David here in a second. So how does one become the first poet, poet laureate of West Hollywood? Like, how, how does that even come about? I'm very curious about that. Yeah, the, I live in the city of West Hollywood, and they created a committee, and I had applied, and they elected, they elected me the first poet laureate. Yeah. So clearly, it was a committee with really good taste. Um, <laughs> there have now been, I think, four or five other poet laureates. It's a two-year appointment, um, but it was really nice to, to be the first and implement programs that are still being enacted. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, you know, part of the job is raising the pro the poetry profile of the city. And it's something I'd always been doing anyway, because I really, poetry is one of the great loves of my life and I enjoy connecting people with it. Unfortunately, I think a lot of us grew up learning really bad poetry in school. <laughs> I was going to say, it's got to be more complicated. I mean, I think my poetry uh, study ended somewhere around iambic pentameter, so... Uh, I imagine it's more complicated than that. Yeah, let's, let's, well, I mean, that's a complicated form to write. Unfortunately, it doesn't always reflect the complexity of our emotions. Right. And so when people encounter poems that really sing to them, I think that that's where there's power. Yeah. So your, your writing, um, you know, I've read some samples of it. I have not yet read this book that we're going to talk about more of. Um, but it is, it's not standard prose, right? Like when I'm talking about you've written a book, this is not like a Stephen King book or, you know, a John Grisham book, a, you know, what people are probably used to reading, even though it is telling a story, it's not using that standard prose format. Is that right? Yes. So I started writing autobiographical poetry and my first book was published at the age of 25. And in that, I'm sorry. A bit of a show off. Okay. 25. (laughs) When when I look back at 25 year old Stephen, I love that. I felt old at the time. I felt like I was slow. Like I had no concept of how young that was to have a book out into the world. And it's the title of a very young man's book with a lot of anger, it's called Your Dead Body is My Welcome Mat. That is the most emo book title I've ever heard. That's awesome. Yes. So um, so I think there are benefits sometimes to waiting to have um, writings published. But So my first writings were autobiographical, and I really kind of stayed to that form for decades. And it was only until about 10 years ago um, that I started writing what I'm now calling documentary poetry. Okay. Very similar to a documentary movie that one would see, that nothing's fabricated, that every detail is one that really exists. Yeah. So in this collection, A Quilt for David, it's a story saturated with so much misinformation that I didn't want to add to it. So I took no poetic license. I didn't fictionalize anything. I didn't use any of my you know, there was no musings on of my own. 
I, I was, uh, I researched um, very deeply for 10 years on this situation. And I want the reader when they read a detail in the book to know that that detail came from my research. So, and I want to talk about what, what that is. So a quill for David, this is, it's not a book, uh, it, you know, my non, uh, non-cultured brain uh, needs to know this. It's not a book about a blanket. Um, yes, there is a quilt that is part of it, uh, but uh, that would be, I think that would be a challenge though, if you could write a compelling <laughs> book that is just about a blanket. So I'll just throw it out there. Uh, but this, this is a, it's a book about a small town dentist in Florida, David Acker, who is, uh, there are accusations that he is infecting people, essentially infecting people in the town with HIV. And this is a true story that you're telling us. Yes, in 1991, these accusations came out and he was and he was a closeted gay man living in Stewart, Florida. Very shy and um, was dying. And when he was dying, he sold his dental practice. He was aware towards the end of his life that someone had came forward and stated that they believed their HIV infection was because of him. After his death, several came forward after that. The, the story itself, it's, it's sort of like you're saying, it's really unfolding as, as this man is dying, after this man has died, when he really has no ability to stand up and, and explain anything. Um, it's happening at a time when, you know, there's, there's, there's countless movies out there. I'm sure lots of folks, I'm, I'm just going to use Dallas Buyers Club because it's a, it was a very popular movie. I think it helped a lot of people understand stuff that frankly, you know, I'm, I'm a straight white guy from mid Missouri. Like there's a ton of stuff about all of the, the late eighties, early nineties in HIV that I just don't know and, and don't mm-hmm. understand those kind of movies certainly help us. And, and I would guess that this David Acker issue and, and what was occurring there was not necessarily terribly unique um, to him that there were accusations like this uh, out out there about other folks. But in this particular instance, we have somebody who just has absolutely no ability at all to stand up and say, no, that's not what happened. Yes, there was so much HIV hysteria at that time. And it's easy to forget that this is really the kind of the apex of tabloid culture mm-hmm. and talk show culture. So there's a lot of dramatic, over-exaggerated information that the public is receiving about gay people, about HIV. It was still also a moment of extreme hatred towards gay people. And so this situation of villainizing and scapegoating a gay man who towards the end of his life had a sickly appearance and then died of AIDS, one can see how easily that could happen. Sure. This, this scapegoating. And for me, I started researching it just thinking, you know, I remembered seeing this on a tabloid show when I was in the eighth grade. You know, I thought of that moment. I thought, hey, how, how did he give his patients? How did he transmit HIV to his patients? That was the thought. That was the question. Right. And so I started researching like most people do by using Google. Right. And the articles that I was encountering were so loaded with homophobic language, and also not this language that we know today of alleged, accused. It was very, 
It was stated as if it were a fact, and yet no one was able to state how exactly transmission happened. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it was just curiosity that just kept driving my research, eventually going to Florida several times where I was going through courthouse documents, through local libraries, archives. I, at one point in time, put an ad in the newspaper and gave my phone number. Oh, wow. wanting to yeah, wanting to talk with people who knew or were patients of the dentist. I, because what was clear is his accusers had a lot of press time and coverage and information about them that was public. Sure. But very little was known about David Acker. So uh, I, how does that even, you know, the genesis here for you as a project, I mean, you mentioned you, you had sort of a memory of it. Is that that it? Or was there more to like why you get into the, like why you go to Stewart, Florida, uh, you know, <laughs> down by Lake Okeechobee, like you, why are you down there truly? Is it, is it just curiosity and, and you're the cat hoping that you make it or is there more to it than that? I think that really curiosity was what fueled me. And just like most creative people, it's just about following a desire or an urge and cognition comes later. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and no, I, I get that. I get that. Also, the more I uncovered just there were more questions, but also it was starting to look as if, you know, what happened to David Acker could happen to any of us. Sure. Where someone's story can really change our legacy. Someone's story about us could change our legacy. Mm -hmm. You know, most people know the story of the dentist who gave his patients AIDS, but actually, you know, with my investigation looking further into it, it does raise a really big question. Did he actually? Because when looking at his accusers, they all have outside risk factors. How, what do you mean by that? And to, to be clear, you know, we're talking about folks who, you know, we're going to we're going to stay away from particular statements of fact here. I am a lawyer. We're talking in allegations here a lot. So just so everybody's clear about that. Um but so what do you mean by outside risk factors for these folks? Because that was my, my first thought when I was reading about the book and, and researching about you to, to have this, this chat with you was I, I would have to guess that this kind of claim was happening left, right and center in the 80s and 90s with folks who were just just lying about how they were contracting HIV because of the, the societal shame and the judgment and the fear and all of the reasons why you wouldn't have just said oh, it's because I am a closeted homosexual or it's because I am bisexual or it's because I, you know, mm -hmm. all of the different reasons why it could occur. So what do you mean by by these outside factors? Well, you're right that people were incentivized to sometimes misrepresent their modes of transmission right. because in our culture, there's there are acceptable ways of transmitting something in unacceptable ways. Sure. Unlike COVID where a risk factor is just breathing, right? Right. right. HIV, the risk factors coincide with acts that have a lot of judgments, IV drug use, anal sex, gay sex. So like people would sometimes invent reasons for their infection. Mm -hmm. So what, what kind of reasons? I mean, what, what, what would people come up with as opposed to saying, you know, I'm an intravenous drug user, which is not exactly something, you know, you don't go home to your spouse and go, I have to tell you something. I have this disease that we don't know a lot about. It's very scary. By the way, I'm an intravenous drug user and I've been sharing needles, uh, you know, in, in the park. 
like yeah well <laughs> blood transfusions were one way that people were transmitting hiv um early on before our blood supply was being tested and sure. so that's how we had people like i think it was the raymond brothers we had ryan white um i I think Alison Getz was her name. She was a young woman in New York who came forward. You know, her story is very specific where repeatedly it was said when she lost her virginity. So it was that first time. So it's always this statement of, oh, it was, it was only once. I'm not someone who gets around. And, you know, there's a lot of sex shame that, sure. that was just so embedded in the culture then still now, but less so. And like you said, that, David, when the accusations came out, he was dead. Also, being a gay man, who are his social circles? Well, other sure. gay men. And are they going to out themselves in order to defend someone? Right. Because again, we're going back to, and I think it's hard for folks mm -hmm. who are of a certain age, you know, if you're under 40, trying to imagine the early 90s for, you know, a gay man in a relatively small town in Florida, my God, like, I mean, I can't even begin to think of the fear of, of being found out in certain instances uh, in, you know, 1993 versus 2013. And this is how powerful homophobia was at that time, that David would travel on the weekends two hours to Miami, where he would go to gay bars and socialize and have sex with other men. Uh, he was taking that because that two hours offered him safety of not being outed. When he first discovered a Carposi sarcoma lesion, which um, is sometimes referred to as a KS lesion, mm -hmm. it's a purplish kind of mark that people with HIV were experiencing and a lot not of. Not to simplify it, but I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and go out on a limb and say most of our audience has probably at some point in time watched Philadelphia. Yes, and, and that's probably the easiest reference point on that. Yeah. Um, and for people who weren't getting tested for HIV, I think the test came out in about around 84 or 87, you know, when there wasn't even a test, this was one of the ways that people, you know, it was one of the signs. Hmm. And so when David discovered a KS lesion and he found it concerning, he took that same two hour drive that he normally would take to socialize, but he did it to see a doctor and he even checked in using an alias. Wow. He was so fearful that the information about his sickness would impact his business. That's that's so. I mean, it's really hard to wrap my head around. I mean, the, the, that to go and get health care, just health care. Now, we're not talking about anything salacious here. We're talking about something that people take completely for granted, the ability to just go and see their doctor, that that would have been scary for somebody and, and not that long ago. Just, just based on their sexual orientation, just that alone, just that would have been scary to go and see a doctor. That's, that's mind blowing for me. Yeah. And, you know, I've, I've been living in Los Angeles for, like I said, about 17 years now. And there are stories about certain doctors having private entrances and exits Wow. for their more famous patients um, seeking HIV care. Sure. And so it's something that it's not just in small towns, um, the shame and stigma and thankfully, it is better now in that we have so many people who are very vocal about being positive and talking about having been infected with HIV. But at that time, that really wasn't the case when we look back at 1991, what was going on in 91. And so when a young woman by the name of Kimberly Bergalis, who was going to um, 
a school in Gainesville, when she tested positive for HIV, she told her parents that she was a virgin. Mm. And that's also something she relayed to the CDC. Uh uh And so the quest was then to discover how did this virgin become HIV positive? Right. And that's when there was a, an assumption, you know, a hypothesis of, oh, she, you know, maybe that dentist um, that everyone in the community thought, maybe it was him. Hey, folks, I just wanted to take a second here and let you know, if you're a first-time listener of the podcast, you can follow us on Twitter with at the Heartland Pod. You can also find us with heartlandpod.com, where we're going to have all kinds of good stuff coming out here very, very, very shortly. We have a wonderful growing audience of folks who have been listening, and we really, really have had a good time putting this show out. So we hope that you'll subscribe, leave us a comment, leave us a rating, a review. We really, really love it, uh, and we really could use those because it helps other folks find our show. Please share the show with somebody. Let them know what we're doing over here. And together, we can all change the conversation. HeartlandPod.com, at the HeartlandPod on Twitter. Now let's get back to the chat with Stephen. And Kimberly eventually was on the cover of People magazine. She was on uh, 60 Minutes in 2020 talking about being infected by the dentist. There were, the next woman who came forward was a woman by the name of Barbara Webb, who was a grandmother and a retired school teacher. And so the media really loved these women mm-hmm. because they did not represent the, the kind of the dangerous category of IV drug users or gay men. And it's interesting to see, you know, Thousands of gay men were dying across the country right. and becoming infected. It's interesting who grabbed the attention in that moment, right? Right. right like right. you, you could see the disparity, the disparity sure. there. And Kimberly's family hired a lawyer by the name of Robert Montgomery. Robert Montgomery is known in the state of Florida for suing the tobacco industry and winning. Mm-hmm. So he was a very high-powered lawyer, very charismatic man, and really knew how to get the media's attention. Mm-hmm. So David, like I said, was aware that there were accusations that he infected a patient and he was in hospice, lying on his ho- in his hospice bed when he wrote a public letter stating that he's aware of the accusations. He said, quote, it would go against everything I believe in. And then he urged all of his patients to get tested. He died three days later. And then three days after that, the letter was published in the newspaper. And his family wanted the letter not to be expurgated. So they paid for a full page ad for the letter. The next day, Robert Montgomery scheduled a press conference with Kimberly Center Stage. So you can see that moment because the letter of of David's is so you can just get a sense of um, that he was a caring man, very sensitive man. And so when the public might kind of warm up to him or have some sympathy and empathy for him, the next day we have Kimberly Bergalis, right, who's this kind of, quote unquote, perfect victim. Sure. Yeah. Well, how else could it possibly happened? It must have been. Mm -hmm. It must have been. You know, part of my book is exploring 
what was going on in Kimberly's life, like I said, her risk factors, but also not really slut shaming sure. uh, the people that were involved. I really think that, you know, Kimberly repeatedly would use the expression, she said it when she was talking to Congress, she said it numerous times in interviews, I did nothing wrong. Yeah. And I think that's true. I also think everyone involved did nothing wrong. Right. That just kind of living our lives, we all have risk factors. All of us have had some kind of risk factor. Sure. Um, and especially then when there was even less information known and less, and people are, were not getting tested as readily. Yeah. 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 That is such a fast, I mean, she talked to Congress, this man pens a, a letter on his deathbed to defend himself. And in, in the defense where he could have simply defended himself, he urges people to take the step to get tested, even though just by saying that it could, you know, I, I'm a lawyer by trade. And my first thought was, oh, well, why would you want everybody to get tested if you have nothing to do with the infections, right? It's so easy to spin that back into itself and say, well, that's why he was urging that was because he knew. Even though, like you're saying, no, this is a man who cared for the community enough that that he, his thought process was probably more along the lines of, A, to say, I did not, this could not have happened, but B, everybody should still be getting tested because this is very serious, and I think everybody should take a moment to do that. And it was more about advocacy for testing than than anything, which... This is fast. So I've not had a chance to get my hands on the book and now I am, I am dying to read this book. I'm fascinated by this story. I almost don't want to get too deep into it. Cause I want other people to like, I feel like we're right at that point right now where I'm like, I need to know more, but if I know too much more, <laughs> like, we've got, we've got an alleged virgin going to Congress to trash, uh, you know, a, a, a dead gay dentist who can't do anything to defend himself I mean, this is crazy. This Why is this not a movie, I guess, is my first question. This is insanity. It's interesting you mentioned that. That's the thing I hear the most from people, actually, um, since the book has come out. People mention that. One thing that's important is that very few people were writing about this for the past 10 years. Right. Um, that I was doing this research. When I was doing my research and place an ad in the newspaper, there was a local reporter who then wrote an article about me doing research. What was interesting is this reporter chose to use an image of Kimberly, frail and sick, taking center stage. Mm -hmm. So even when the article is about my doing research in this small town, Kimberly is still put center stage. Sure. And framed in a light to make sure that she is sympathetic in a way so that anything you're doing is viewed negatively. Correct. And actually, after that article was published, every single one of my uh, scheduled interviews canceled. Wow. It really impeded my research for a while. And thankfully, some some people did eventually come come forward and they talked with me again. But after that, everyone canceled. That's insane. It does say something about small towns and people really concerned for gossip. Well, and the power of perception in the media that can that can with one flick of a pen can can tilt the scales in ways that are remarkably unfair and 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 really have no business doing it and yet there it is. Yeah, it was also a situation that caused a lot of pain for a lot of people. I don't think that anyone involved in this situation, definitely the the Burgalis family, the Acker family, 
you know, everyone, the Webb family, everyone involved, a very, very painful and terrible time for everyone. Sure. Yet the accusers are the ones who walked away with a lot of money. Right. So there was the suing for David's malpractice insurance. And then there was the suing of the insurance company who referred the patients to the dentist. There was a lot of money that the accusers received, and this all happened out of court that these were settled. When you say naturally, could you explain why that would be natural? Yeah, so it's very simple because in order to go through the entire process and have a trial, they would have had to have been deposed. They would have been put under oath and they would have been subject to the penalty of perjury. And it would have involved a great deal of digging. So let's, for example, and, and, and the, the names are escaping me. I don't have them at the tip of my tongue like you, but the one who went to Congress. Kimberly. Um, Kimberly. So if I'm deposing Kimberly, right, I'm going to ask her everything under the sun about every romantic relationship she's ever had. And not just that, I'm going to go further than that. I'm going to go as far as I can to every person she's ever spent intimate time with in any way or been on a sports team with, or I mean, anything. I'm going all the way. And I'm then, and then I'm going to go to those people who are the closest in circle, and I'm going to depose those people. And at some point in time, somebody's going to tell you the truth. Somebody's going to tell you about Kimberly's boyfriend or Kimberly's girlfriend or Kimberly's drug use. Or, and, and obviously, I don't know any of this to be true or not. I'm, I'm not make, saying this was true, but there's going to be something out there that's going to come to light that's going to make sense as to why she was infected as opposed to this other thing that doesn't make any damn sense. And, <laughs> and it's going to unravel the entire thing. And that one piece, that one tiny little piece would do that to every single one of the cases. It would take every, you know, it's like in those cop dramas where you see like, well, you can't be dirty because if you're dirty, the whole system goes down because you've arrested all the drug dealers. Like, it'd be that kind of thing where like one piece of evidence could just topple the whole thing. The, the entire thing comes crumbling down. And if you're, the, if you're the lawyer on that case, you really don't want that to happen because insurance companies checks don't bounce. So you really want to make sure that you get the check from the insurance company because that guy's getting 40% of that check. And so whatever they can get uh, done is going into the lawyer's pocket as well. And uh, I talked about this actually on a recent episode. Uh, It's a very pragmatic thing, right? 70% of something is better than 100% of nothing. And so you settle because you guarantee yourself the 70% instead of the 100% and you don't run the risk of having to go through depositions because a lawyer who's good enough to run that case is also smart enough to sit down with his client and say, if there's anything you need to tell me, you need to tell me now before we put your hand up and you swear an oath. So that's why I say, naturally, it's settled out of court. Yeah. Also, it's very expensive to have that kind of trial. Exceptionally right? expensive. Yes. Yeah. Exceptionally. And at the number time, of ex- I can't even imagine the number of experts it would be required to march in and convince a jury uh, that this dentist had been infecting patients. I mean, it would be terribly expensive and not mm-hmm. an even, and probably not a big enough group of people to be a true class action. So it would probably be individual trials, each one having their own trial costs involved. So that makes an even bigger cost. And the insurance exposures, now the insurance exposure goes from one to boom, 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 boom. So it's, yeah, there's, there's all those dominoes that go into it. And it's much easier to just take the check and not have to do all that. Yeah. And where the title for this book came from, A Quilt for David, it's a reference to the AIDS Memorial Quilt, mm-hmm. which I think that most people have seen. It was a great way of um, helping loved ones mourn 
by creating a panel of a quilt panel. And I discovered that Kimberly Brialis had four panels in the AIDS Memorial quilt. Really? And yet David didn't have any. Mm. And it really saddened me. Um, you know, Roy Cohen even has a has a quilt panel and, and David Acker didn't. And it really made me sad thinking about the inequity of treatment, care, representation mm -hmm. of those two people. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I explore throughout the book yeah. is how, you know, what risks are forgiven and what risks do we punish? Yeah, yeah. Robert Montgomery, the lawyer, just to tell you a little bit and give you maybe even a slight spoiler, Robert Montgomery had a son by the name of Scott Montgomery who also died of AIDS. And, and he died of AIDS uh, after Kimberly, yet I only found record of this in one interview where Robert Montgomery talked about it. Yet there's this um, troves of, of articles and interviews where Robert Montgomery is defending and talking about Kimberly Bergalis. Mm -hmm. And I really hope, though I don't believe it to be the case, that... Robert Montgomery treated his gay son dying of HIV. I hope he treated him with as much generosity and care and love that he treated Kimberly. Yeah. Hmm. And that, that probably wasn't the case. So we talked about a little bit uh, that you, you don't write in the standard prose. You, you use a, a completely different uh, style of, of writing and then the, you know, through the poetry and, and the, your stylistic choices. One of my favorite reviews of this book was that it is genre bending. Um, and so how much of that is a, a conscious decision for you as an artist that you have to, you know, really be in the moment with everything you're right. Cause I do a little writing and I find some of the best writing I do is when I'm not really thinking about the format of what I'm doing, I'm just allowing the writing to occur and then I'll go back later and kind of format it. But I, I would have to imagine that if you're writing poetically, you have to write very intentionally and that that would really stifle the, the speed of the process and make it a very like, you know, a, almost a train on the tracks kind of thing. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it was a slow process for me. And um, I love that you picked up that genre bending. That's uh, who said that was Richard Blanco, who we know as Obama's uh, poet laureate, yeah. inaugural poet yeah, laureate. Um, yeah. So that was so nice for him to praise my work. And one, it's very accessible work. It's very readable. Um, I am so I'm hearing from people who are like, it's the first book I've read in a long time. Like, I mean, right. so like non-readers are getting into the book okay. because there is a suspenseful element. There's also an element of really just having tremendous empathy and feeling for the people involved. I'm a poet, so it is my beloved form. But when I first started researching this and, and writing notes, and I, I thought I might actually write a nonfiction book. I thought I would write about this situation, but really poetry is the language of our emotions. Right. And in this situation, there was such a denial of science and data and that people's response was really just an emotional response to Kimberly and the accusers, mm -hmm. not really looking at what was happening. And so I thought, what if through poetry, I could help elicit feelings 
towards David. Yeah. Now, are you suggesting that Americans don't always look at the science and the facts and instead just, <laughs> I, I mean, that would be a pretty radical <laughs> accusation, Stephen. I don't know if we want to get into that territory here. But uh, no, so I actually had a question. I, I want to ask this question that because uh, um, you're, you're hitting right on it. And so the question, I, this is exactly what I wrote. How much of your writing is about conveying information through emotion rather than conveying emotion through information? So instead of writing how it made you feel, writing in a way that makes the reader feel. My goal is for the reader to have an emotional experience with the work. And I think that's the most important. It's not necessarily how I'm feeling yeah. when, that I want to convey, but I want them to have an, an experience. And I also hope that the words are enough, you know, they're, and it's really kind of a different form, but like, I've never put my poetry to music. I think the words are, if I do it well, the words are going to do the labor of that that I don't need any flourishing to it. Yeah. Um, I'm not a spoken word poet. I'm a very, you know, mm-hmm. um, that it's just, for me, it's really about the words on the page. And with this situation, it was really about the words on the, the page being emotionally loaded, but also giving facts of what happened. Yeah, yeah. What, what is it your hope, you know, that this book can do? I mean, what do you, mm-hmm. what do you hope it does? That's such a good question. I hope that it helps rewrite the narrative of what most people know about David Acker, the dentist. Mm-hmm. You know, still today, his Wikipedia page reflects that he infected his patients. Same with the accusers. Um, I really hope that people see that this is kind of, it's cancel culture, right? In 1991, where people are reacting quickly and they're not taking a moment to pause. And, you know, like we laughed about, like, look at the data, look at what's going on and, and sit with nuance and complexity. Right. People weren't doing that. And I understand it's such a heightened time uh, with HIV hysteria that that wasn't happening, but it's been 30 years and this situation really does deserve to be re-examined and looked at. And um, this book is getting a lot of press and attention. And I'm so thankful for that mm-hmm. um, because it's it's about David Acker and that dentist office and what was going on, but it's also about what was going on in our culture right, in 1991. Right. And that right. time. it's clear that David Acker's story is uh, very much a, a a representation. I mean, as much as it is specific to David Acker, that it absolutely in, in, encompasses something much broader than that, that we're just, maybe we're ready to have that conversation. Maybe as a country, we're finally ready to have that conversation. I, I don't know. Um, but I'm glad. I hope so. Asked. Yeah. Yeah. I, I hope so as well. I mean, we you know, hey, we had, uh, you know, a, a gay presidential candidate who's the transportation secretary. That's you know, 30 years ago, could you even, well, not, okay, not that there wasn't a gay president. Obviously, statistically, there's probably a couple, but, <laughs> you know, that it would be not not a sensation, right? That it was just a fact. It was just a fact of who this person's, you know, biography is. It's it's not, it wasn't a big deal. It was just, yeah, that's who this person is. Um, where, so where can people find this book? How do they get it? Where do they find it? Where do they get your work? 
Sure. Well, this book, first of all, was published by City Lights, and most of us know City Lights by publishing Allen Ginsberg's Howell and Berlin Getty and Ralph Nader and Jack Kerouac. And um, so, I mean, it's it's such a great publisher. So you could go to citylights.com or the website aquiltfordavid.com. And we'll have a link in the show notes for folks as well uh, for that so they can find it. Um, okay, so shift gears here and uh, pull into a little segment here called The Favorite Things. All right. Okay, I've got three of them here. Uh, so the first one is your favorite single author oh this doesn't, is... <laughs> doesn't have to be genre specific if you want to make it genre specific you can i know that's like probably the hardest question i've asked you so i feel far. like sophie had an easier choice than that <laughs> oh, i would say anais nin the diarist okay why i'm curious why i actually discovered uh the writing of anais nin when i was in st louis missouri um Actually, one of your co-hosts, Rachel, I know her cousin. And when I was 15 years old, her cousin slipped me a copy of Delta Venus. Mm. And she said, put this in your bag. It's the best smut you'll ever read. (laughs) And That's a true friend right there. Right? Yeah. And she was right because I was, you know, I was 15 and full of hormones. And I mean, just like reading like erotica was so, it was like such a charged experience for me. And then after when I, I think just exhausted, I started reading the preface of that book, which was a excerpt from her diary, from Anais Nin's diary. And in it, she talked about the importance of poetry and nuance. Interesting. And it was so, and, you know, and about living life as an artist. And so I was so, I was like, oh, this is from a diary? I didn't even know, I only knew Anne Frank's diary at that point. You know, I didn't know that other people were like writing diaries. And and so then I started reading all of Annie's Nin's published diaries where she um, just completely inspired me. Wow, that's very cool. So number two, and it's kind of a take on that, but I, I, sometimes these can be different things. So your favorite single work, be a, it could be a novel, a poem, a, you know, whatever, uh, your favorite single work. Do you know who is coming to mind is the visual artist Barbara Kruger. And that is hard just to think about one Barbara Kruger piece. But I do really love her piece that has the text. When I hear the word culture, I take out my checkbook. Uh-huh, uh-huh. She's... Um... Made the collages. I think she was a collagist, right? That's the right term. Yeah, she would use photograph, like old photographs and text. She, she, the one that I am thinking of. So that I, I the one that I'm thinking of is, I, I shop, therefore I am. <laughs> yes, classic <laughs> yeah, Barbara okay. Kruger. Okay. Also, there's um. Yeah. Oh gosh, she's so great. I just have such a crush on Barbara Kruger. Actually, now I'm just like thinking about all these like great Barbara Kruger um, sayings. But another great one is, "Do I need to give up me to be loved by you?" Oh, that's a very good one. Yeah, she's great with language. That's a very good one. Yeah, I love. That is an incredibly succinct um, 
boy, that speaks volumes though. <laughs> In mm-hmm. one sentence. Wow. Um, okay. This one, hopefully it'll be a little bit easier. Uh, what is your favorite thing about coming home to St. Louis? Maybe we already covered it at the beginning, <laughs> but uh, maybe not. I think we did cover it. I think Adrian is on the hill. I mean, it's because I think of St. Louis is, I mean, there's so many things about St. Louis. I love it's food. Um, And I always talk about St. Louis, but really it's the food. It's what I miss the most and the people, but I live in Los Angeles. So all the people visit me, Right, right, right. but really the food is uncomparable as well as there's such a great work ethic of the people living in St. Louis. And unfortunately there have been some, some things in the news that have really put St. Louis on the map and not in a positive light. Right. And it's, it's saddening um, that, that the struggles that St. that have been going on in St. Louis, which also happen across the country. Right. Right. Yet St. Louis is getting really, there's a spotlight on it. And um, unfortunately that causes some um, disparaging remarks about the city I love yeah, um, because I think that it's, it's filled with so many well-intentioned, well-meaning, very intelligent, creative people. Yeah. And um, I think the struggles that are in, in the city are the struggles in a lot of other cities as well. Well, thank you very much, Stephen, for your time. You've been very. That was so loaded. I'm so sorry. That just, I was, no, like, that's all right. That's Saint okay. Louis, I just that's couldn't okay. keep it like. <laughs> that's okay. That's this is real. It's gritty. It's what it is, right? This is gorilla podcasting. Uh, but thank you very much for your time. I super appreciate it. Uh, I know you know everybody's got plenty of stuff to do, and I appreciate you being on here. And looking forward to getting my hands on uh, a quilt for David, and uh, I hope. You know, I, I hope we see a, a ton more of it because, I mean, there's a, there's so many different streaming places right now. Like, this 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 is a movie. This is a movie. Let's get it done. Let's go. They can use this podcast as a jumping off point. It's it's got lots of good stuff in there. So, thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Heartlandpod2020 at gmail.com.